you know, here's a ecosystem, a very unique ecosystem that represents just 3%, 4% maybe of the terrestrial environment in the world, but packs a huge punch in terms of carbon storage, for example. Uh, if you look at the Hudson Bay lowlands, which are the largest intact peatland in the world, stores five times more carbon than the equivalent area in the Amazon rainforest. And if you look at the totality, you know, the, that 3 4% throughout the world uh, stores more carbon than all the forests combined. So if, if we want to address, you know, the issue of climate change, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff, and on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today's episode is with Edward Struzik. Now, I've had Edward on in the past, uh, an episode very early on uh, called Firestorm. He uh, He's an author. He wrote a book about Firestorm talking about the effects of the fire paradigm we're in now, the fire regime we're in now. Um, and climate change and all that kind of stuff. And it was a really, really eye-opening, cool book. And he just released another one called Swamplands. Now, it is all about peat, all about peatlands, all about our cultural connection to those areas, why they've been treated the way they have, um, the mystical stuff, as well as the very scientific, right? All about the, you know, uh, species at risk, you know, from pitcher plants to rare orchids, rare insects and moths and that kind of stuff to caribou to carbon capture. The importance of peatlands in carbon capture can't be understated. Um, and it's, it was just a really, really eye opening book. Um, I mean, we all kind of know wetlands and peatlands are important, but this really, this book really, really hit it home for you, right? It just really, points out how crucial they are and how important they are to not only protect, but to restore for multiple reasons, right? For flooding, for carbon capture, for species at risk, for all the things that I said and and more. And it was just a fascinating book. He starts talking about the cultural importance of it, the history into the scientific and all kinds of different things. And I definitely want to read it, check it out. The book is called Swamplands. Tundra Beavers, Quaking Bogs, and the Improbable World of Peat by Edward Struzik. Um, he's an awesome guy. He basically just travels the world following scientists around, learning from them, and then writes a book on it. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. Really enjoy talking to him. Very insightful guy. And uh, I, I know you guys are going to learn a lot from it. So, uh, yeah, this book is all about that, all about all about his quest to, to inform the world about peatlands and their importance and uh, I just really thoroughly enjoy speaking with him every time I get to. So uh, you're going to love it. Sponsors, same as usual. West Fraser is the number one sponsor for 2022. Uh, they've been with me for a while now, and they allow me to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. And I cannot thank them enough for their support. Awesome company. Thank you, West Fraser, for everything. Uh, Green Lake Forestry has also been with me since the beginning. 
Can't thank them enough. This would not be possible without them. Thank you, Greenlink. Uh, let's dive into this conversation with Ed talking all about the importance of peatlands for lots of reasons, <laughs> as you will come to see. Very, very interesting. Here we go. I wanted to start off, actually, uh, getting the idea for this book. Like, how did you go from the first book where I, I interviewed you for Firestorm, uh, all about wildfires and climate change and learning to live with fire, uh, to this story about Pete? Where did, how did this transition happen? Well, it was actually not a transition. It was sort of, uh, you know, two things that were born around the same time. And uh, this book arose out of a trip that I had done on Banks Island down the Thompson River, which is the most nav- na- northerly navigable river in the world of any length. Uh, and it was a month-long trip. Um, and I was as absolutely stunned by the amount of life that was on that island Uh you know, there was at that time 88,000 muskox, which represented two-thirds of all the muskox in the world on one island. There was around 5,000 caribou at that time. There was a genetically distinct population of wolves, um, distinct in the sense that uh, there was no need for them to migrate uh, elsewhere. So they were quite satisfied to stay there. And so they kind of evolved um, separately from the rest of the Arctic population. Uh, there were six different freshwater uh, fish species uh, on the Thompson River, which you really don't find anywhere else uh, in the Arctic. Uh, hundreds of thousands of geese, including uh, sandhill cranes. Um, it was the, the, the life, you know, that far north was really astonishing. And I was, you know, got me thinking, what what's the common denominator here? And I realized is that quite obviously there's enough food to sustain all those critters. And the thing that allows the food to grow is peat. Uh, Peat is, you know, one of the great soil conditioners, a great medium for uh, growth um, Mm -hmm. in the South as well as the North. And uh, the peat, which is very obvious on Banks Island is, uh, several feet thick. It, uh, it, it's very noticeable. And right. I was, got me thinking, is there's, you know, this looks more like the North end of Scotland than it did in any other Arctic Island that I'd been on. And as I started exploring the so-called world of Pete, I realized there is, uh, a story here. Um, right. these are biological hotspots, uh, courtesy of these, uh, you know, peatlands, which are bogs, fens, swamps, and marshes that accumulate peat in waterlogged conditions. And um, in case your readers don't or your listeners don't know, it's it's partially decayed vegetation that builds up over centuries. So in a, mm-hmm. in a cold environment where it's quite wet, um, the vegetation decays, uh, but it doesn't uh, disappear. It just sort of builds up layer after layer after layer. And so I just uh, realized that it uh, occurs pretty much everywhere in the world, but mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, so I started visiting all these places and um, explored them and just started discovering so many different things that were absolutely unique about these places, as opposed to, you know, the forest around them. 
or the grasslands or, you know, the alpine country. Uh, they are really quite special place in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I think um, – I don't think anyone's ever dove into this idea to the depth and scope that, that, that you have in this book, right? Like you really – I think people are – we're kind of in the age of environmentalism. You know, people are aware of sustainability. They're aware of um, environmental ideas and, and the concern for climate change and all these kind of things. But like something like a, as simple as like – wetlands right people are like oh yeah it's just like wet wet stuff right but like the idea of peat i think people know what peat might they know what it is but they may not understand the significance and so it was interesting for me to find that this was one of the really the only books that dives like does this kind of a deep dive into the fascinating world of of peat that i otherwise was unaware of for <laughs> in a large degree as i found out as i read the book <laughs> yeah, and me too up to you know up a certain point um uh, you kind of take it for granted. Uh, I, my, my first, uh, uh, my next acquaintance with it was uh, we bought this old house in Edmonton that's 90 years old, and we couldn't figure out, we realized that it, uh, we needed to get new insulation because uh, there was frost on the walls on, you know, January days like we've had uh, just recently. Yeah. And when the old we, newspaper insulation, uh, horsehair insulation uh, doesn't really do the trick in minus 30. <laughs> it's actually heat. Oh, it was Pete? Yeah, they <laughs> Pete used to used to be a, a commercial form of insulation at one time. But the problem wow. with, with Pete is that uh, once it exposes it's bit exposes to air, it shrinks, it loses its moisture, <clears throat> and so it settles uh, to about a fifth of its size. And so it was it was insulating the bottom fifth of the walls quite nicely, but uh, <laughs> four fifths on uh, there was just nothing there. And it was a lot right. of fun trying to pail out, uh, uh, and it's a big house. Uh, it was quite the process paling it all out. Um, and so that's that's another feature of peat that people, uh, you know, I think have long forgotten because it's no longer used as a form of insulation. Uh, but we've been make, you know, there's been some really interesting discoveries uh, as to, for example, why. Why do rattlesnakes, the uh, Massasauga rattlesnake, how can they survive a Canadian winter in Georgian Bay, you know, where the temperatures can go down to minus 20, 25? I mean, they're a reptile. Um, it can be a very long, cold winter. They're getting warmer, but, you know, they've always been there. So the question was, is how, how can they survive? And they've just recently described, uh, discovered about two, three years ago that they den in peep. And because it it keeps them warm enough, um, uh, uh, you know, below the frost line uh, or in the frost line uh, to prevent them from freezing in winter. And turtles do the same. So it's an important uh, feature in an ecosystem is that uh, it uh, the other thing that that distinguishes a lot of peatlands such as fens is that their fens are <clears throat> are different from bogs in that they are fed by groundwater, uh, not so much by precipitation, but by groundwater. And most of this mm-hmm. groundwater, uh, you know, for example, in the Wagner fen just outside of Edmonton, um, that water is always around four degrees Celsius. So it keeps, you know, that underground area fairly warm. And so you can, you can find these incredible orchids uh, growing there in the springtime. And they can, that's how they survive. They just uh, feed yeah. off the warm, warmth of those uh, underground springs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was an. Inc- I, I, just, I have so many questions because going through your book, 
you went through everything from the you know the folklore to the the, the you know the spirituality of it to the the economic history to the all the way up until you know current day to ecological importance and carbon capture and all these different things and it feel like, I feel like I felt the same as when I read Firestorm and that I was I was overwhelmed with the amount of information but I was that the point was definitely getting through and <laughs> consistent and steady every paragraph you're like hey pay attention Pete's important Pete's important Pete's important and it was it was really really cool to see uh that what I liked about Firestorm was in this, but in a totally different, obviously different subject, right? But it was, it was really, really cool. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned the difference between like bogs and fens and that kind of thing. And that was something that caught me right off the bat, just as, as a forester, like very familiar with different types of wetlands, right? Um, the, just quite simply the title, swamplands, right? How yeah. did you come up? Cause, cause a swamp is a very specific type of wetland and you talk about you talk about pretty much anything that has peat in here, which is not just swamps. So why why swamplands? Why not peatlands or something else? What was the? Well, it was mostly a marketing thing. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, swamplands versus peat peatlands, uh, uh, you know, is not quite as uh, as as an attention grabber. But the reality gotcha. is, I mean, there is some scientific basis to this. Is that uh, peatlands are formed by kind of swamping. And most of that swamping and say probably 80% of the peatlands of the world comes from the recession of glaciers, all that water. Uh, wow. So most of the peatlands uh, are post-glacial phenomena. Uh, right. And, you know, those glaciers that came down all the way to British Columbia, Washington State, all the way to New York City began receding. Uh, they, you know, receded very quickly, you know, to some mm. extent, almost almost as fast as what we're seeing now. And they just uh, resulted in huge uh, amount of flooding. And of course, they filled up all the depressions uh, that were there in the past that were scoured out by the glaciers and filled them up. And because it was still very cold, you know, you got this cold, the, the vegetation that did grow uh, and decayed, you know, this, uh, leaves and stems and whatnot, uh, they just piled up on each other. And that's basically, they call it pollutification, but pollutification uh -huh. really is swamping. So swampland uh -huh. is actually an apt name for it. Um, uh, and it appealed both, uh, you know, to the, mar the the marketing department. And it was good enough for me. And, um, <laughs> and most, most people have accepted it when I've explained it to them. The scientists that have said, you know, swampland, swamps are different. But uh, when I talk about it, it is a swamplands. So swamps yeah. and marshes uh, don't accumulate as much peat as quickly uh, as, say, fens and bogs, which are really the yeah. primary accumulators of peat. Right. Yeah, I, don't, I just thought it was an interesting – I knew you'd have a reason for it. I knew you didn't just throw it out there. It wasn't yeah. the publicist giving it to you, but I figured you had a reason. So I wanted to know what your reason was because I figured yeah, you I talked to enough – If the book was called Pollutification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? People might get a little confused, including myself, and be like, what's what's Ed writing about pollutification? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's well, I figured you talked to enough scientists, right? Like that's your whole gig. You're jumping around the world talking to scientists, talking to researchers and practitioners, and I figured – I was like, he's very aware. So what is his reason? So yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to get into uh, uh, the, the the folklore and that kind of thing. Because like I said, you, you, you went from 
you know, kind of the, the spiritual, the history and worked your way into the environmental and carbon capture, that kind of stuff. You kind of covered the gamut, right? You told the full story, I feel like, of, of what Pete has done for us and, and, uh, it's, it's cultural importance, right? So I wanted to start right in the beginning when you start talking about, um, the cultural significance, you know, there was the, I think you said, it wasn't distrust. Um, Deceit. you, anyways, deceitful, the deceitful nature of the folklore. Yeah, yeah, the fear, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we used to believe that, uh, it was the responsible, it was responsible for disease and, and all these maladies and bad things in our nature. Why, why did you decide to include this? And what, what, did you, what was the importance of including this to you and in trying to tell this story? Well, I think it was a setup to, to try to understand, you know, from a culturalist perspective, why is it that we revile these ecosystems, continue even to this day? I mean, it, is it just because they're buggy, wet? Um, and the more I looked into it, the more I realized is that there was really a, a history uh, associated mm-hmm. with this revulsion of these uh, uh, wetlands. And, you know, part of it was superstitions, um, mm-hmm. you know, bogs and fans, uh, you know, give off methane and they can actually, you know, glow at night, night in a swamp. And so people would, you know, be venturing along a trail or a roadside and they would see these, uh, lights in the bog and superstitions, you know, arose around it, such as, you know, the mm-hmm. will-o'-wisps, the jack-o'-lanterns, uh, the moss people, uh, from my heritage, um, when I used to skate at the bog uh, on a frozen bog at nighttime with friends, my mother would warn me about uh, Mora Kikamora. Uh, she was this um, uh, critter that had the kind of chicken feet and a the the long beak of some kind of bird, um, and very tiny. Uh, but she would follow you home at nighttime and then enter the house through the keyhole. And once she got in look out, you know, leave it, <laughs> leave it to great imagination. Um, as right. why. So, you know, this is one way of getting me home <laughs> at night. Right. Yeah. So I didn't late <laughs> into the night, uh, but there was always other, you know, more interesting stories about it is that, you know, uh, when she was brewing beer, fog rose over the bog kind of thing. Um, but you know that there's so many of the many of the uh, American Canadian settlers brought over these 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 superstitions with them, and we still have them with the day. You know the the New, Jer- New Jersey Devils hockey team is named after a swamp creature. Um, oh, and uh, you know made famous by the NHL hockey team, but also Bruce Springsteen. Uh, wrote and sang a song and did a video called "A Night with the Jersey Devil." Look it up; it's actually and it's oh. all based on this uh, this swamp creature. And if you if if you look it up, there people still claim that they you know it's like Sas- Sasquatch. People still yeah. claim that they hear or see it uh, in the the bogs and fens of New Jersey, the the pine lands of New Jersey, which are massive remnant of still quite big, but a remnant. Uh, 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 peatland uh, that mm-hmm. wasn't drained. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and like I, it, it totally makes sense. You know, once once you explain it in the book, it, it makes sense to me why it, it was this source of uh, you know of, of spirituality of 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 the extra you know extra normal kind of thing. Just because, yeah, people tended 
still to this day, you know, the, the average hiker has never walked through a fen, probably, right? No. Like it's no, just not a place you go. I mean, I've so, uh, it, I, my one of the great lessons that I learned uh, was uh, I was invited to go on a Parks Canada trip, just me and James McCormick Warden to hike across Ivivik National Park, which you know, is a park in the north end of the. It, it's basically tundra, but it's massive peatland, and uh, the idea our 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 our, our our instructions were to get to Babbage from Babbage Falls to the Firth River near the Alaska border and to see, you know, what kind of a hiking route it might be. And mm. I think it was, you know, a total of 35 kilometers. Well, in six days, we only got eight kilometers because <laughs> we were just like, you know, get it, it was just boot sucking. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so you get, you, we stay away from those. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, I think, you know, they remain intact is that, uh, most people see these places as wastelands, but also just to get back to the days of the superstitions is that most, many people, because, you know, the smell that came, you know, the sulfur dioxide that uh, percolated from the bottom of a fen or a bog, uh, they always made they made this connection that it was uh, uh, related to diseases that would break out, uh, be it the common cold, which uh, you know developed in what they called swamp fever uh, or cholera, and so they called it the miasma on unhealthy soils. They didn't mm -hmm. see it, you know, as uh, bacteria growing in a water supply, as it was most often the case. They saw that these uh, peatlands. Uh, actually generated diseases. And it was one of the reasons why there was a massive attempt to drain them, uh, mm -hmm. not only to turn it into farmland, but to get rid of the disease. And mm -hmm. if you look at the history of, of Central Park in New York City, um, it was, the primary purpose was, was to create a recreational area, uh, a park so that people could breathe and walk. But it was a swampland before that, and it was a massive 10 year effort to get rid of all of that water, all of that vegetation. And one of the reasons, other reasons why was they believed that it was responsible for diseases such as cholera. Um, and that, that, that idea continued right into the early 20th century. People still believe mm -hmm. that swamps were, were the, the, the cause of disease. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I wasn't, I was, I was totally unaware of, of this connection to the superstition and, and it totally makes sense tying it to our treatment of or, or lack of, lack of thought about peatlands, right? Up and up until even present day, right? When we think about it just wasn't considered important. Like when people think nature, they think, uh, you know, old growth on the coast or they think, uh, a mountain vista with, you know, pine and dug fir or they think, you know, that kind of stuff. They're very seldom thinking black spruce and tamarack and, uh, you know, what I mean? <laughs> well, just, you know, 20 feet of moss, right? It's, it's, it's just a different idea of nature for, for, I think for the common person. So it's, it's, I'm not surprised when, when you, when you started to lay it out, I was like, it just all makes sense, right? It's, it's, it's very, yeah, it all ties together. And even the political, right? Like you, you mentioned politically speaking across the world, there isn't a politician 
that hasn't or there isn't a politician out there that makes reference to peatlands that doesn't just call them a unproductive waste of space right <laughs> i was like that's interesting it was you know the u.s congress passed three different swamp acts in 1849 50 and 1860 and they gave away land i think 65 million acres of swampland to the states but on the condition that they drain them mm-hmm. and that was that was the whole purpose was to create agricultural land and also to make uh, the soils more more healthy and that can that you know we think that that's just the relic of the past but if you move you know you, you go fast forward to say the 1950s and the 1960s the national research council here in canada hosted mm-hmm. uh, i think it was 16 annual conferences on what they called the so-called they called it the muskeg problem Oh, okay. And the the idea was to bring in uh, scientists from universities and from industry uh, to figure out a way to, uh, number one, to drain them. How do you drain them effectively? Or to find some way of being able to travel on top of them or to build roads and bridges on top of them. And uh, the whole purpose was they saw this as an impediment to economic growth. That, you know, we needed roads to get into the hinterland. Uh, We needed to find a way of getting to the minerals that were beneath those peatlands. And so the idea was to, you know, drain them or to find a way of building, you know, vehicles. Bombardier actually got involved in designing vehicles that could travel over Muskeg. Not successfully, it turned out. Most, Most of the time, all of these vehicles ended up getting swallowed up. Um, but, um, uh, so, you know, even right into the mid 1960s and you'd appreciate this is that the one objection, so the meeting involved not only university scientists, uh, the national research council, but the utilities were brought in, uh, the forest industry, the mining industry, and the oil and gas industry was all bought in, brought in to put their heads together and the one dissenter uh, each year was the representative from the forest industry who oh, yeah. really believed that this was a big mistake um, mm. because that they created their own forest. And he said, you know, some of the best wood that we get comes out of the forested fens. And uh, and he's right and to an extent. Um, they're maybe not the tallest trees, but they're certainly very hardy. Uh, they're Miniature old growth uh, forests is what they are. Uh, Certainly, you know, many of the larches, say, if you go to Wagner Fen just here in Edmonton, on the Mm. outskirts of Edmonton, there are larches that are 400, 500 years old. And Mm -hmm. they've evolved, uh, you know, largely because uh, they're hard to get at, but they've conditioned themselves to live in these, you know, these environments, these swampy environments that other trees would not be able to survive in. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a good reason now that the, that forest industry doesn't go into there because you can't grow trees back very well, so it's pretty unsustainable. But <laughs> but at the time, yeah, it's it's a that's interesting to note that. I I assume that there was always people who probably recognized that there was some kind of balance that needed to be struck between these things. But it, it's interesting to note the the societal shift over time, right? From the, the viewpoint of as a as just a an economic problem from which to deal with to the current day where 
we're starting to think about it as as a as a as a balance system, right? How do we how do we balance this all out? And especially in the time of climate change with floods and everything else and fires, we we're only starting to realize more and more that we need to protect some of these areas, right? So I go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say with, with all that, like what I never did ask you at the very beginning, I meant to. Um what was your hope for this book? Like why like I asked you how did you get into this book and you spoke about the beauty of 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 these places. Why did you did you feel the need to write this book? Well, I came to the you know conclusion that probably about midway through the research and the travels is that you know here's a ecosystem, a very unique ecosystem that represents just 3%, 4% maybe of the terrestrial environment in the world but packs a huge punch punch in terms of carbon storage, for example. Uh, If you look Mm -hmm. at the Hudson Bay lowlands, which are the largest intact peatland in the world, stores Mm -hmm. five times more carbon than the equivalent area in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, And if you look at the totality, you know, that three, four percent throughout the world uh, stores more carbon than all the forests combined. So if, wild. if we want to address, you know, the issue of climate change, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer in my mind that uh, we're 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 going to get a bigger payback if we protect these areas or restore them as they're doing in China, in Europe, Great Britain, um, the Scandinavian countries. Russia is even doing it. Um, but it's not just all about carbon. I know that, you know, a lot of people roll their eyes when they talk about carbon storage, but there's other things that uh, Pete does. And it, for example, um, uh, filters water uh, very effectively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when sphagnum dies, it releases polysaccharides, which uh, block bacterial growth. And it's one mm-hmm. of the reasons why the Vikings, for example, uh, use bog water on their long voyages because the, bot- bo- the bog water would not go bad. It would not uh, build up bacteria. And gotcha. this this came right up until the 1940s and 50s where the U.S. Navy used to dock at the Great Dismal Swamp on the east coast of Virginia and fill up uh, uh, with bog water because it was they, – they understood the pro- that property of it actually – you know, slowing the growth of contaminants. And if you look at why the Great Lakes, for example, are um, uh, developing, you know, they've got such a big algae problem right now. Part of it is temperature. Mm. There's no question about it. But the Great Lakes used to be surrounded by the Black Swamp on the American side of the border, Wayne Fleet Bog, and, you know, all the other bogs on the Ontario side of the border, but we've drained most of them, so there's there's there are no there's no longer any peat there to filter out all of that yeah. those nutrients that are coming from farms, uh, and it goes straight into the Great Lakes and it creates this algae. So yeah. there you have it. I mean, it, 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 it there's there's two things alone which make makes it ideal to you know try to protect it and to restore it. Um, and I've said this in a number of different articles is that, you know, the Trudeau government has, you know, vowed to plant what, $10 billion of tr- 10, 10, I don't know how many, how many mi- millions of trees for how many, it was 2 billion, 2 billion for $4 billion or whatever. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I, I go ahead. Um, but the fact is, um, we may be much better off uh, restoring or protecting peatlands or investing more money, most of the money into that or an equal amount of money in that because it doesn't take a lot. You know, there was a study done, I think, out of the University of Waterloo is that, you know, one acre or one hectare of peatland is just as effective. Uh, it doesn't lose its effectiveness in storing carbon or filtering water or all the other things. Um, it also, you know, for example, the, uh, the the other thing is that, as you know, as every firefighter knows, is that wetland is the firefighter's best friend on the landscape. You know, if you it's wet, any number of firefighters <laughs> on the ground in, in front of a mega fire. But the best you can hope for uh, outside of weather coming in is basically either slow it or steer it in another direction. Um, but if it hits a wetland, it either slows considerably or it stops. And one of the really vivid examples of what happens when you get a, of a peatland is the Horse River Fire at Fort McMurray in 2016. One of mm-hmm. the things that caught the firefighters off guard was that when it approached this fin uh, just on the outskirts of uh, Fort McMurray, they expected it to get to be slowed. But when it hit the fin, it just took off. It, mm-hmm. it sped up considerably. And the reason being that uh, the firefighters didn't know that, that the forest department, another part of the forestry department, drained that fin as a forest experiment to grow trees. So what you had was uh, uh, you had black spruce, you know, which is highly combustible, uh, growing on top of dried out peat. And so when it hit there, it just took off like a shot and mm. flared into Fort McMurray. And so they were totally got, totally caught off guard there. So there's another service that these peatlands provide us. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would top it off is, is that, you know, trees need a lot of nutrients to grow. They need a lot of water to grow. Um, nutrients kill fence and bogs. Uh, you know, they, they've evolved without it. And that's why the plants... Uh, are unique in that, uh, you know, uh, picture plants and sundews, they don't get most of their food from the soil or their peat. They get most of their food from bugs uh, that they capture because there's just not enough nutrients in 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 that soil. Um, and so you don't need a lot. All you need really is a rewetting of the landscape and basically the seeds uh, that you have, you can easily get from mosses, which are incredibly difficult to destroy um, uh, unless you dry it out or drain it. Um, but a tree, as you know, you can you can a forest can with a hundred thousand trees, two hundred thousand trees can burn in a day. Oh yeah. So the question yeah. is, is that you know where's our money better spent, or do we divide it up? And I think I really think that. Peatlands just offer a much, much better opportunity uh, to deal with climate change issues. And if I can natter on here, also mitigate floods. The reason why Calgary flooded and Canmore flooded so badly in 2013 when we had that rain on snow of it in the Rockies was that Calgary's drained 70, 80% of its peatlands. So when all that water came rushing down out of the mountains, there is not any of those mosses there. Mosses can absorb 25% of their moisture. There just wasn't the peat there to absorb it. 
So it mm-hmm. would have been a lot uh, less catastrophic had there mm-hmm. had there been peatlands around the city to absorb it. And I remember, I remember when that happened. There was it was almost immediate. Within a couple of weeks, there were stories about that. Right, like within a week or so of that flood happening, there was all kinds of columns saying like, "This is what happens when you know for urban sprawl and agriculture that we drain everything to try and make it a an upland site." Right, you end up just with this straight shot, basically a, a water shoot, water slide right from the mountains right into downtown Calgary. Right, and and I think that was a uh, yeah, like a, a a cautionary tale. Right, it, it kind of brought it to people's attention right away for sure. And yeah, the, the the point that you made in the conclusion of the book about the two billion trees thing, right? That the Canada's contribution to do or uh, commitment to do two, plant two billion trees in ten years to try and help mitigate uh, climate change. Yeah, and and then you brought up this fact of of restoring these peatlands. I this is something I never even considered. Where like how much. How, how, Besides, uh, besides, like you know, northern Alberta, Fort McMurray, that kind of area where they're where they're being drained constantly for oil and gas exploration, how many of these, like, how many of these bogs and and fens and that kind of thing, do you think are still relative, just there but dried out? That all you need to do is just provide water back into it to try and get that carbon capture back in. Like, how feasible is that? Is that task? You know what I mean? I've tried to rewet these areas. It all depends on the site. Uh, and there is a, um, you know, there's Laval University has developed it. It was actually the expertise was started here by Dale Vitt at the University of Alberta, who was tasked to restore and experiments uh, peat that had been harvested uh, at a number of different sites around Alberta uh, by the peat moss industry. And he was able to, um, uh, essentially regrow these peatlands by co- combination of factors is that, you know, you, you bring back the water, but you also provide the seeds for the mosses and, and other mm. plants to grow. And that, that strategy strategy is becoming increasingly more effective and, and, and including in, you know, I think people would might be horrified, but in the oil sands is that the, you know, they've destroyed massive amounts of peatlands, uh, you know, stripped, uh, you know, several feet of peat to get at the bitumen below. Uh, mm-hmm. But because we do have, at least, you know, on the surface, uh, wetland uh, restoration uh, legislation in play, they've been compelled to try to restore some of those peatlands. So they have brought in people like Dale Vitt, uh, Dave Cooper from Colorado State. Uh, to try to regrow peat in the oil sands, they're having great difficulty doing it because, you know, the destruction is so great there. Mm-hmm. But in other parts of uh, like Seba Beach, for example, in Alberta, they've successfully, very successfully restored that almost to its original state. It's not perfect, uh, but it's certainly, you know, 86% of the plants that went, once were there are there now. That's a fairly healthy ecosystem. It's storing carbon rather than giving off carbon. Uh, and it's fairly inexpensive. It's, um, it, it's, it's cheaper to do it than it is to try to grow a forest. Uh, and the other thing about, you know, uh, as, as, a, as any forester would know, is that trees can come back on their own. They don't really need to be planted. Uh, you know, we do it in terms of plantation, but there's a natural process that takes place. And we see this happening after every fire. 
you know, the seeds are dispersed, uh, you know, the cones, coniferous cones open up and they disperse seeds and, and things grow back quite nicely. So I think to some extent, if we leave nature on its own, the forest will take care of themselves. Although I'm not so sure now because of, you know, the uh, intensity of the fires that we're seeing and burning at increasingly shorter interval intervals, whether that's going to happen. And that's why I, I, I pause, I don't oppose, but I pause to think about, you know, spending so much on growing trees when we could spend an equal amount and getting a much bigger payback by restoring fens and bogs and then save the forest at the same time because they are natural breaks so that they will actually reduce the impact of forest fire in the future. So it will actually save the forest uh, without having us to grow them. Let Mm -hmm. mother nature grow the forest and let, you know, bring back the peatlands to, you know, help buffer these forests from, from big mega fires. Yeah. I know there was, a, there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of skepticism with the 2 billion trees thing. Cause, um, what is the definition of, of planting a tree and what is the definition of success? Like how long is that tree need to survive for them to get paid? Right. And that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of skepticism around that. And I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? There's always people that'll, that'll take the quick buck and, you know, plant a tree, walk away and say, yeah, I did it. And, and so there's, there was, I know there was a lot of skepticism around that. Um, think of this, if you have $2 billion to invest, mm-hmm. the other thing that you could do is you could have, you know, as, as some indigenous communities are doing, getting the forest mm-hmm. industry to help them thin out trees to reduce mm-hmm. the impact of fire, forest fire down the road. If we do that, you know, more in, in, in strategic places in the boreal forest, along with uh, restoring fens and bogs, then we've got mm-hmm. two things that help the forest in the future, rather Absolutely. than simply naively thinking that if we plant uh, billions of trees, that it's all going to come up rosy. Absolutely. No, I think, I think that's, I think, I think it's a really cool idea. Like I, I love this idea of peat restoration as a, as a climate change, as an assistance to climate change solution, right? Like it's, I think it's, it's absolutely what should be done. Why wouldn't it be done? Right. And um, thinning out the forest, because if you thin out mm-hmm. the forest, you reduce the intensity of fire and also you retain more moisture in, you know, there are less trees, uh, to, you know, to suck up all that moisture and more of that moisture would go into wetlands as, you know, would probably have done if we weren't so aggressive in suppressing fires. Mm-hmm. So these are two things that I think that we can do to move things forward uh, in mm-hmm. a very positive and, and, and more likely successful way than to plant mm-hmm. a lot of trees. Yeah. To me, the only, one of the real promising ways I see the 2 billion trees thing to go well, is there's a, there's a, um, a company here. Uh, well, it's an organization, a nonprofit organization here called project forest that I've had on, before and and they're trying to they're trying to reforest some agricultural areas around the city here right so they're not just planning they're not doing plantations they're trying to plant you know alder and rose and and a bunch of different tree species and mosses and they're trying to plant a forest right and to me recreating that forest on what was you know uh you know canola field or whatever uh that seems purposeful, but you're right. Like it's just planting plantations. You're not going to end up with that. You're not going to end up with that carbon storage in the soil the way you would with peat. Right. And there's like, there's, there's, there's a lot of, I like the idea of the trees, but I think I like your idea of peat. It seems like a more, uh, long-term solution. And that if you can restore that peat, it can, 
pretty much be there forever. Even if it, even if the top burns, you still have peat below, right? So like, I like that trees. idea. And you have trees too. So it's I, I think I think there's a there's definitely it's I think it's just it's an outside the box thing, and I'm not surprised that the government hasn't tapped into it. But I, I liked I like that thought, and I, I would like to see some. Uh, I'm going to be keeping my eyes out for for people that are trying to accomplish that kind of thing because it's definitely an interesting idea for sure. And if you look at, say, Edmonton, Edmonton was one massive <clears throat> wetland. Uh, even at the turn of the century, right into the 1930s and 40s, uh, the you know subdivision of McKernan was a lake in the 1930s uh, that you know where people went to skate. There was a trolley that went went to it to take people from the north side to the south side on the high level bridge. Uh, if you look at historic photos of Edmonton, we don't have all of these trees in the river valley that we do now. Uh, that's really a facet of uh, us basically keeping fire out of our, our, our valley. And it would have been more yeah. wetland than it would have been forest. And now if you walk through there, and I live you know, on top of the river valley by the university, and I walk down there every day and and people should have, have a look. You know, most all, all the birch are gone. Uh, and in fact, many people probably don't have memory of birch anymore. It used to be such a common tree in the river Valley, but it's gone. Um, Aspen are dying. Probably 50% of the Aspen in the river Valley are gone. Uh, the conifers are, are having trouble growing. It's not a healthy forest. And it's because we basically kept fire out of it. We've created a forest instead of a peatland and the results really aren't that pretty. It kind of, from the air, it looks good. And, you know, from a cultural point of view, we all kind of feel fuzzy about the fact that we got crease joined down there. But if you walk through it, it is not a healthy ecosystem down there. Mm -hmm. It's a very dense, it is very, I mean, it's constantly disturbed, right? Like we've, um, Oh, my, my current job that I do, like my day job, we did an inventory, kind of a, a, a primary land vegetation inventory for the city of Edmonton. Um, and we did some soil pits and some digging. And, and what you think is, uh, <laughs> is uh, say, the original plant species and that kind of thing, you dig down three feet and you're finding oil cans under there, under, you know, an 80-year-old spruce tree. And, you know, and we also found like bison heads and stuff down there too. But there's, it's the river valley has been disturbed so many times that yeah, there, and like you said, we've there's no fire, there's no cultural burning, there's no there's the natural processes are kind of gone. I still love the river valley, but yeah, like you said, there's definitely it could be done more intelligently. But like, how do you it's, you come to that problem of educating the public, right? Like, how are you gonna how are you gonna show the public like, okay, we're gonna burn out your favorite walking spot this year, but it's a good thing. Like they're gonna be pissed. Just- <laughs> Jasper National Park did it. Banff, Banff has, is starting to do it. And they've brought it in, you know, as an education program as they walk these yeah. people through. And if you did it in Edmonton, and I, I've been I've been advocating this for some time, is that if we just right. burn small areas, little, little, you know, areas that we know that we can control so that it doesn't, you know, doesn't get out of the way and burn all the houses in Windsor Park and adjoining subdivisions – and then just you know uh, invite the public to see what happens. Yep. You know, if we do it in the spring, you can show them. Make it a good news story. Yeah, absolutely. You- Make it a good news story. Make it a big thing, right? Yeah, like this. absolutely. I think it could be done for sure. I-, I think it can be done. It's just that we're such a in in some some ways such an uh, well, we've got knuckleheads that basically we hire for as poli- you know that we elect as politicians. <laughs> uh, no, it's true. I always love our politicians. They're the best politicians. <laughs> 
no, they 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 have they have no vision. They're risk averse. Yeah. Uh, they do, you know, we, we, we have politicians that continue to do things the, the way they've done for the last 50 to a hundred years. Uh, and they're reluctant to, uh, uh, embrace the challenges that we're facing now. And so this is totally. the reason why we're behind the eight ball. It's really, you know, it's, there's no risk in planting a bunch of trees. Everybody loves a tree. You know, it's where right. the word tree hugger comes from. Uh, Easy one to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, you know, what we need to do is start electing politicians that have, you know, bold new ideas uh, to deal with a, you know, a an urban forest that really is in need of renewal of uh, of basically the biggest forest environment that needs to be needs. You know, we need to adapt to, you know, the challenges of climate change Um and I find it just ironic that uh, the places in Canada that are way ahead of everybody else are in the indigenous community that have control of their land, that are not afraid of fire and not afraid of thinning out forests, because no one is going to tell indigenous people at this stage of our history, sorry, history and, tr- and treating them is that you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> And so they're doing it and very successfully. If you look at the, uh, you know, the, the First Nations in the Kelowna area and uh, they've been burning and, and thinning out forest um, and the communities outside of those areas are not doing it. And they're the ones that are burning whenever the Okanagan burns. Yeah. You know what I just realized? I think we need a we need a, in Edmonton, we need a city councilor that's just for the River Valley, just for the treat area. The city councilor just for there, the whole city votes on it, and that person's responsible for the River Valley health, like <laughs> and recreation, all that kind of stuff. Why not, right? Well, we need you know, there's there's a plan afoot to turn it over to Parks Canada. You know, the, that's right. I remember hearing that River Valley of Edmonton and Saskatoon and, you know, whether Parks Canada will. I mean, there's another risk averse uh, organization, but they have finally embraced, you know, fire as a rejuvenating force in the national parks. And, yeah. been, you know, so they're but they're very slow at doing it because they're limited to such a small period of time in the fall and and, and the spring. Uh, because they don't want to have tourism impacted by by smoke, which is well, it's government, right? There's yeah. a lot of red tape to go through before you want to burn a piece of property. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is ironic because in doing that, what they've done, we've had like three out of the last four summers where it's been almost impossible to travel in the national park because of all the smoke that's been wafting in from BC or from different parts of Alberta. Uh, yeah. And so we're paying the price now for something that we should have been doing decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to change, uh, we should shift gears here a little bit. Um, we'll get back to your book. <laughs> um, uh, there, there was a part. There was a part in there where you were talking about endangered species and how the majority of endangered plant and insect species uh, in the world are in these wetland areas, right? And I found that that was an interesting point. Um, I, I always wanted to ask somebody this because you find you come into into these conversations with uh, there's a lot of different perspectives that come into the conversation about endangered species. Right. And I think everybody inherently kind of wants to protect endangered species to a certain point and other people, the people have different lines of where they'll draw the line and say, okay, well, we'll just give up on that one. Right. So for you, how, how do we, how do we prioritize these species and how do you, how do you personally think about, um, what is the importance of these species 
to conserve and like how much time and energy should we be putting because there's you know there's people who will say oh these plants and animals uh, evolved during the ice age right and evolution's always moving forward and and uh at some point we'll have to draw the line because they're just not going to be able to make it on their own and so what do you say to those people and how and how do you justify um not justify i shouldn't say justify because I, th- I, th- I feel like i'm with you on the, on the, on the subject but I, I like i like to get people's opinions on how they put this into words right because I think there's, it's a conversation that doesn't doesn't get happened a lot. People yeah. just kind of pick their side and stick to it, but we never talk about the middle ground. Yeah. Um, well, let's just look at it from a holistic point of view. Is that we have, say, most of our peatlands are found in the boreal forest, and so we have what I think is something between three to five billion birds that fly from the south, as far from you know the tip of South America most parts of the United States that nest in our, our peatlands. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, there's the other analogy, you know, to the tree huggers is that we've got a lot of people who love birds. And if you continue to eliminate uh, all of these peatlands, th- these birds aren't going to nest. They're not grassland birds, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need that forested peatland or, you know, the fens and bogs uh, to keep them, you know, to sustain them down the road. Um, sure. And um, the price, I don't think, I think we've kind of, we've, we've, we've kind of reached a stalemate. It's kind of like World War One, when everybody's in the bunkers on both sides shooting at each other. Um, and I think that if we uh, we looked at the value of peatlands, say to uh, you know where for for example, where does everybody want nobody I, nobody that I know of wants grizzly bears to disappear from the landscape. But sure. think about it is is that if we have an old growth forest, the canopy is so thick that all of the root vegetables, the berries, the you know uh, blueberries, cranberries that the bears eat when they can't find meat um, mm-hmm. disappear. Mm-hmm. And if there's a fi- if so the peatlands probably, I, I don't know that there's ever been a study done on, but probably most of their food comes from peatlands. Uh, if you think about it um, on the other hand, where does a grizzly bear go when the forest is on fire? So the forest will forest fire will manufacture food, bring back those, root vegetables and the berries uh, that they need to sustain themselves. But think about it. Where do they go when there is a fire in the forest? Uh, I I haven't seen a study that outlines it, but you can bet that those that survive probably hunker down in a wetland uh, where the fire can't get them. Uh, There has been a study on caribou is that caribou spend 50% of their time on peatlands uh, mm-hmm. presumably because that's where most of their f- food is found. Uh, that's right. Yeah. I think that what we really need to do instead of saying we've got to save every single caribou, um, and I- I'm all for that, but I-, I think that probably the more effective strategy is to find out where these biological <laughs> hotspots are, uh, how can we maintain them or restore them, uh, mm-hmm. so that we create more food, manufacture more food for those animals which is really the big factor i mean hunting is not the is not no. 
killing off caribou or grizzly bears. Really, it's the lack of uh, food availability, um, mm-hmm. the habitat. And I think restoring that habitat, protecting that habitat is really key. Uh, the it, habitat connectivity too. It's I think I think mostly in Alberta, it's the connectivity of the habitat. Not that it's not yeah. there, but that the connectivity is broken up, allowing for sight lines for wolves and even just roads, get, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. If you look at the at the oil sands, the number of roads uh, and seismic mm-hmm. lines that they've created and they haven't restored, um, you know, has really been independent to um, you know the the survival of these species. They've created mm-hmm. you know pathways for wolves to move, move in uh you know they've they've haven't allowed for regeneration of a lot of that food that they need and mm-hmm. we're there's a bit of a disconnect and i you know think is still happening for example is, is that the, the forestry industry can be in the same trying to go go into the same place as the oil industry uh, but the oil industry would say no you can't you know we'll have our separate road you build your separate road and so we've just got to, I mean, some of it is just common sense is that mm-hmm. if you're going to build a road, you know, make yeah. it just one road instead of a whole bunch of different roads. That's a conversation I have a, a, quite a few times on this podcast. So just the the lack of communication between industries created a lot of extra anthropogenic impact that was completely unnecessary. It is. Yeah. Totally. And I've, I've talked to many yeah. people in the forestry industry, actually, you know, even 30 years ago that were saying mm-hmm. this is that. We wouldn't build a road into this area if we could use the road that was built by the oil and gas guys. But the oil and gas guys won't let us because, you know, they believe this is a security issue and they're just not willing to accommodate us. So they build another road. And so this is why we've just got this uh, scattershot uh, network of, of roads that get you in just about every every other any place you want to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate to say the least, for sure. Yeah, it it was just an interesting idea. Like the whole, because I feel like that's always the question. The question around when, where do we draw the line with endangered species, right? And like, how do we, like, what fundamental reason do we have for, for conserving these plants and and animals, and 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 how do we prioritize their importance? It's just, it's always interesting to see where people draw the line because I think everyone can get on board with like, yes, we should protect caribou, but what is in our day and age or this day and age, you know dollars and cents is the is how we measure value so what is each caribou worth in a dollar value right is it a million dollars is it ten thousand dollars is it what is it right and i find it interesting to have those kind of philosophical discussions about what kind of a value do we put on it and at what point is it um not worth the investment or whatever not to say it's just i just find it interesting right because those are the those are the confusing areas where people people aren't really sure how to how to feel about it right because you're you're having the hard the real hard discussion right so um but to, i, I to think speak, we should be so, having some discussions as to um the nature of some of the resource industries that that you know we try to push forward and i think a you know a real good example is coal mining in southwestern alberta up in the headwaters of the old man river and the crow's nest river um uh, you know, this is this is if you think about it, all those trees would be cleared out of there uh, mm-hmm. if you have any kind of uh, tailings pond um, break, as they did on the BC border going into the United States. You know, I think was Tech Resources just paid sixty million dollar fine. Um, these are this is the water that goes into the prairies. 
So the question is, and, you know, there's a lot of wetlands up there that store that water, filter that water. Yeah. And if we get yeah. rid of it and we just turn it into, you know, rock, um, it's just going to slide out of the mountains and, uh, you know, as a, more as a flood than as a trickle of water that we want to see. And this is going to get even worse down the road as, uh, you know, as climate change starts drying up, the begin continues to dry up the prairie. So I think we have to analyze uh, as well uh, which of these natural resources do we want to exploit and if we do so, how do we do them uh, effectively? Um, and I think that, you know, there can be a strategy where, like I said earlier on the conversation, is that if you restore peatlands, you're actually going to, re- to make forests re- more resilient to things such as wildfire and drought. Absolutely. That's the moisture there. So I think we kind of have to evaluate a whole bunch of different things. And uh, endangered species is, I think, you know, the great bonus that we have, um, Mm -hmm. that if we just target one species, uh, you know, the spotted owl is a renowned example. Um, Mm -hmm. Where do you go? You know, to what end does that come to? Um, Nobody really is happy in the end. But if you create the habitat, protect the habitat or recreate the habitat, then that, everything else, I think, falls into place. And it doesn't have to yeah. be a single species that is the focus of our attention. It can be a whole variety of species that are associated uh, with that ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and to, the, to your point about the coal mining versus, you know, the forested area and the, and the wetlands and the, and the ecology of the area, it's, it's more and more I've started to recognize that human beings, at least in Western culture, we have a – we do a pretty shit job of valuing future resources. You know, we, we tend to forego the benefit of the future for the short-term gain of the now, right? We're kind of garbage at, at investing in our futures. We're not very good at it. And I think that's where stuff like coal mining comes in, right? Is we're just, we're just totally missing the boat on where society's heading. And we just fail to, to recognize that there's there's so much value over the next thousands of years in maintaining that ecology that totally, in my perspective anyways, in my view, most likely outvalues any kind of profit you can gain from coal mining, right? But I think, I mean, that's my very biased perspective, but I find it interesting that we continue to make that mistake, right? Well, you know, you go back to 1911, there was a forester by the name of Abraham Connectel who worked for the Dominion Forest, which is now the Canadian Forest Service. And in 1911, we created the forest reserves in southwestern Alberta with the sole yes. purpose of two, you know, two, two purposes. One was to protect the headwaters of those rivers because they saw them as invaluable to water supplies for ranchers and farmers down below, and also mm-hmm. to protect, uh, to you know maintain forest for uh, timber harvesting. And mm-hmm. Connectal, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send this to you. I, I, I have it in the book, actually, where he makes a connection between these wetlands, these headwaters, the importance of of maintaining these forests. But added into it, he pointed out, is that one thing we need to do get back on the landscape are some form of herbivore to replace the bison that all disappeared. Oh, yeah. And that Good was Lord, cattle. No kidding. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, and initially ranchers were kicked, were not allowed to go into the forest reserve, but they realized they had some really big fires in 1911 was that without bison to keep the grass down, things just burn like crazy. So if you bring back the, you know, the, the rangelands and allow, you know, allow the ranchers to graze their cattle, uh, you know, they create fire breaks, they keep the grass down and prevent the forest from burning. So, you know, these ideas are not necessarily new. They've been around for more than a hundred years. Uh, it's just that, uh, we haven't really learned from the past. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's the subject (laughs) of my next book on fire. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's called the, uh, the, the the past and future history of fire. And it's, Ah. it's, it's more of a, um, a book about the, the cultural history of, of, uh, of fire in Canada than it is about the scientific approaches. Have you just out of curiosity? Have you spoken with Amy Cardinal Christensen? What's that? Do, have you spoken with Doctor Amy Christensen from uh, Anarchan? I, I, ha, I, I, I have talked to her. Yeah, in fact, she is in, oh, okay. in the book. The perfect. I was going to say you. Perfect. I was like, you need to talk to Amy for sure. <laughs> She's definitely got some something to contribute to your book for sure. So that's good. I'm glad that happened. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. I was actually going to mention to you the the cultural burning thing and, and curious, but that's a different book. We'll talk about that next time <laughs> when your when your when your next, next book comes out. <laughs> okay. All right. This summer, um, stay tuned. Yeah. This summer. Okay. There we go. So it won't be that long. There we go. Perfect. Uh, so I, I was I was really excited. Um, when I got to the the couple chapters about the you know the Wagner wetland and the the Clyde Fen up here around Edmonton, just because that's where where I live, right? Um, not because we were talking about them, but I got really excited because I have I've never really been into entomology, right? Like I took it in school, and like I know John Spence, your the, the guy, your go to guy, yeah. he taught me entomology and that kind of thing, and I. I found it interesting enough, but it was never something that I dove into. Um, when I was reading your chapter, actually, I listened to the audiobook version. Um, when I was listening to it, I got really, really excited about the idea of all of these. You were describing all these rare moths and insects, and even the plants, like the pitcher plants and the and the orchids and that kind of thing, in in these in these bogs and fens just around Edmonton, I immediately found myself planning excursions this summer with my wife and daughter into these areas to to go and find some of these things, right? Like it was just, it was exciting to, It's I, I found it interesting that I'm in the world of environmental, you know, environmental stuff, sustainability, forests, all that good stuff. Um, yet I live 20 kilometers away from a world-renowned ecological hotspot of you know, these insects and plants and I've never, didn't even know about it. Right. Yeah. And so it, it's, it was, I just found that fascinating. And Clyde Fenn, you talked about the, the abundance of pitcher plants there and pitcher plants are something that I've been hearing about for a long time. And I've seen a couple, but never seen, never really seen like a crop of them, right? Like a crop's a bad word for it, but you know what I mean? I've never seen yeah. an abundant amount of them. So I would love to go and I definitely want to go check that out, but I was just excited I think anytime that a writer can get somebody to care about something that they previously didn't care about, you're doing your job. So nice work. (laughs) Yeah, it was really, really cool. And and, uh, I guess I, I, it helps that I know some of the characters you were talking about. So that helps me bring, uh, I guess, bring some visual aspect to it as well, but it was really, really cool. And I just, I definitely, I hope to get people, if people are listening to this around the Edmonton area, um, 
Yeah, it's uh, it's what's called Wagner Natural Area. Wagner Natural the, Area. It's just uh, it's yeah. just on the highway going to Jasper. Yeah. Uh, it's fairly nondescript. There's just a little sign that says Natural Area, turn left, um, mm-hmm. and it's tiny, but it really comes alive in say late May, June when you have you know just uh, dozens of different kinds of orchids uh, coming into bloom. And uh, it's a place where you have to look down rather than up to really appreciate uh, how special these places are. Uh, the other really fascinating thing about it is that they tried to do an inventory of different in- of insects many, many years ago. And I think there's 1,500 types of wasps that are basically new to nature and that they haven't gotten names. That's uh, wild. And I think that's that's we're just discovering new things about um uh, peatlands uh, almost, you know, monthly. Um, you know, for example, the picture plant we now know uh, in Algonquin Park that uh, they eat salamanders. Yeah, which is, you know, hard to kind of come to grasp with, albeit uh, juvenile sal- salamanders. But you know, mostly everybody thought it was just flies and mosquitoes, um, but they actually consume salamanders. And anything that, that falls in, right? <laughs> yeah, anything that falls in is, is, you know, they can digest. And so it's it's one of this, you know, the world that we've ignored for so long um, that I think there's so many new things to discover that it's just worthwhile paying attention to these spots. And it doesn't take a lot where, you know, for example, we're not going to lose a lot by protecting a, you know, a two or three hectare uh, wetland. Um, you know, it's it's not like, uh, you know, big national park that you want to set aside hundreds and th- hundreds and hundreds of thousand hectares of land. Uh, they need not be big to to really pack a big bunch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially around around urban areas, right? The urban sprawl, I think, is probably I, I, I can think of one area just around Edmonton right now where they just drained a swamp to build. I think it was a baseball diamond or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like what the hell guys like what are we doing here like why why the amount of gravel you had to put in there like what <laughs> what are you doing and so it's it's just like a we just have to start thinking about it a little differently right it's uh it's frustrating to see that kind of stuff still happening but yeah i think you're right like it, it doesn't seem like it would take much to have a huge positive change in the direction of 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 you know securing some of these peatlands for the future right yeah 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 the world's not going to end if we have you know, one less baseball diamond, but you know, there's obviously some <laughs> other place you can put the baseball diamond. <laughs> we still have, you know, all train vehicles that have these competitions as how far can you go across a, you know, a muskeg. There's muskeg yeah. ra- races before you sink. And, you know, which in my mind is a knucklehead sport. I mean, why, why do it? Um, yep. It's a lot of fun. I used to do it in my, in my, when I was younger. I used to be, I think it was the coolest thing ever. It was so much fun. But then as I kind of grew older and started to recognize what I was doing, I was like, oh yeah, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it is, you know, and all we need to do is just say stop it. It's, it's like, um, uh, you know, the reason why the Fort McMurray fire probably started was an all terrain vehicle that was going through and some twigs got caught in the muffler. And that probably is yeah. what, what 
what triggered it. It's just easy to say, let's just close off the forest until we get a little rain. Um, it's easy for you and I to say that, but the politicians, uh, they don't think it quite so easy, apparently. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> it's easy to give out uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in competition as well. They all smile and glad hand when that happens. Uh, but it's a much more sensible thing to just say, well, let's let's save 300 million bucks here and just, you know, slow things down until we get a little rain or let's I'm with do you. Thing, let's do things a little differently. So some of this is just basic common sense. Totally. Absolutely. You just have to be the politicians have to be willing to disappoint some people to make the right choice for the long term. Right. It's it's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I know you got to get going in about uh, in about a couple a few minutes here, but um, I do have two more questions. Hopefully we'll get to both. But uh, uh, the end of the book, you talked about peat farming and restoring peat and that kind of thing. So we spoke a little bit about how we can restore peat and that it's doable. Um, we're learning the science of it. And one line that I found really interesting in there, and it was a quote you had, um, I'll probably misquote it, but uh, something about resource resource extraction is inevitable. You know what I mean? Uh, that That's just going to happen with it's the nature of, of, of human beings. And so we need to do the resource extraction that we do do. This is, this is me uh, kind of going off of that quote. The resource extraction that we do do now uh, needs to be sustainable, right? And so I, I I don't really know, is peat farming, is it possible to be done sustainable? Is it being done sustainably? Is that part of a, not necessarily a climate solution, but a solution to our sustainable future? Is peat farming a part of that? You mean growing peat or or the growing or, or harvesting peat moss? Har- harvesting peat moss. And then like my, my understanding is that uh, the the, peat moss harvesting that's going on is supposedly going on at an interval that's allowing it to regrow, but I'm, I'm not sure. So I wanted to know oh, yeah. your opinion on that. I mean, they, they understood uh, at the right around the turn of the century, the industry, which is, you know, Canada is the biggest exporter of peat moss uh, in North America. Most of it mm-hmm. goes to the United States, but sometime around the turn of the century, they realized that uh, their ability to do that was going to be limited by what was happening in Europe, they, where they began to recognize that, uh, you know, the land sinks when you, you know, you you drain these wetlands, uh, 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 you know, their whole cut, whole flooding occurs. Uh, you have more wildfire in places like Russia. And mm-hmm. so they started hiring scientists to see if they could just restore those peatlands they'd already harvested, which is a good thing. Uh, I think probably the ultimate uh, uh, solution is just to find a, 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 an alternative to peat moss as a soil mm-hmm. conditioner. Um, but as I talk to more, the most of the horticulturists I talk to is, is that there's really nothing quite as good as peat moss. So the question is, is that, you know, how much of the land do we give up or do we just force them to, you know, restore what they're doing? Uh, I have to, you know, at least give them a pat on the back. It's what the one industry that has really understood that uh, they're trying to get ahead of the curve. And to some mm-hmm. extent, they've been successful. Uh, and their footprint is awfully small. I think that mm-hmm. uh, the bit more important thing for us is to you know, stop cities from draining peatlands to create new subdivisions, mm. baseball diamonds. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, demand that the the oil and gas industry uh, restore peatlands. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, at a at a rate in which it can actually be done, and that's just not right. happening. As we have legislation in place that 
compels them to restore peatlands, but there doesn't seem to be a timeline. Uh, and so by the time, you know, it's all over, say for the oil sands in Alberta, uh, I suspect that most of those peatlands will remain, you know, they're, they're, they will not be restored because it takes a long time, you know, to do mm-hmm. that, and especially in that area where they've been excavated to the point that they've been excavated. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a, it's a different, it's a totally different situation up there. I don't know how you go from having, you know, fens and larch and black spruce to having a, you know, a pine hill with a, with a lake and call that ecological restoration. I'm not sure, but I I do know people that are in there doing some of that. I know they're doing everything they can to, to, to make it right. Um, but yeah, the restoring peatlands when they've been, like peat farming is they're taking the top layer off, right? Like there's yeah. still peat underneath. It's not like yeah. they're digging all the peat out right down to mineral soil. But yeah, in the in the in the oil sands, they're it's gone. It's just it's, yeah, they're it's digging two hundred so, feet down, and they're you know they're yeah. burning all of the groundwater away from that area so it doesn't fill up. Yeah. And also, it's another level. Yeah, you know they're also reinjecting the salts, uh, you know that they once used. Uh, into the ground. And so you just have a combination of things that makes it extremely difficult, uh, very expensive to restore. Um, uh, You know, we can learn from these mistakes and we have been learning from them. Um, We just got to move forward with, with them. If you're going to invest, if we have a government that's willing to invest two, you know, $4 billion to grow 2 billion trees, I really think that if you use $4 billion to restore peatlands, you really are going to have much more success in storing carbon, filtering water, uh, you know, uh, buffering forests from wildfire and communities from wildfire and protecting endangered species. And it's such a tiny footprint on the landscape that not a lot of people are going to notice or say, you know, what's going on here? Yeah. I think that's a super... Yeah, sorry. I, I I think it was a super interesting concept. I was I, that the in the conclusion when you were talking about that, I think that got me the most excited out of anything in the book. Oh, good. I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like that's that's. I wanted to spend some serious time talking about it. We've discussed the the concept, and yeah, I hope to see more more moving in that direction because it definitely does seem it's something I've never even thought about, never considered. But yeah, why not? Right? Like you right. said, it just seems like a win win win. It's awesome. So I, I did have one actual final question, not not about peatlands, just about writing. Um, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what, like, what do you see your job as as a writer? Because I feel like there's, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to word this in a way that 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 kind of makes sense here. I wrote it down. I got I have to read it. Where did I write it here? Oh yeah, there we go. That's what it was. Okay, so yeah, like how, how do you how do you see your job as a writer? Because obviously you're trying to tell an interesting, intriguing, cool story, right? Um, and how do you how do you balance the difference between you know like a scientific paper, like telling the accurate, full, comprehensive truth, versus what I, I always have a problem with documentaries because documentaries it's very cherry picked a lot not not all but you know what i mean a lot of times it's very cherry picked information it's not the full swath it's not the full picture um so how do you balance that idea between telling the the truth as as much as you possibly can with a cool story and not being misleading like how do you cuz i know you you can't put everything into a book right people there's only so how do you how do you balance that out i imagine it's very very challenging um, not really. It, you, you nope. know, I, I think that, you know, I, I approach things that not everything is black and white. 
right. and that you know there are you just can't say that there's evil on one side and good on the other that it's much more nuanced than that but i think the primary purpose is is, is for me to entertain people uh with uh uh, by translating complex scientific issues in a way that, uh, you know, if I was having, you know, at a, a dinner party, people would actually listen to me and say, <laughs> that's cool. And I, I often try that out, you know, at a dinner party, not so much anymore, but, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll throw this out and I'll gauge, you know, do people find this interesting? And, um, and, and so I go, go off from there. So it's, it's really a, a, a lot about storytelling and, yeah. and 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 trying not to approach things in a kind of black and white way, uh, yeah. where you have good on one side and evil on the other side. Although we increasingly we have more and more of that, but <laughs> I, I just think, and I also just try to be more positive instead of saying, you know, the you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. That I think that there are pathways in which we could move forward. And here's what people are telling me. Here's what I've learned. Um, and so the, the message is try, trying to be optimistic and mm -hmm. trying to not make villains and heroes out of too many people, because I, do, I think that, you know, people are are a little wise to that now. Yeah. And I. And I appreciate that in your writing, even in your first book that I read, Firestorm, that was the first one that I read. And it, I, I got that gist, right? That you weren't out there with a crusade. You're just kind of like, I have this interest. These are the people that are involved in this interest. This is kind of their role. Um, this is where things might be going poorly. This is where things might be going well. And I, I can't, I, I always got the gist that you were, you're fairly comprehensive and fair with, even though, even though it's all very interesting and very, uh, like it got my juices flowing a lot of times, right? My emotional response was there while I was reading the book. Um, I didn't feel it was, I, I, for example, I don't feel that someone from the oil and gas industry that's a reasonable person will read your book and go, well, fuck this guy, yeah. right? Like <laughs> you can read it and go like, yeah, what he said is those are true things. He's not, he's, you're, you weren't going off on a tangent about your own personal feelings about it so much. You were just kind of saying the facts and 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 representing them in an interesting way that tells the comprehensive story. So I I, I just really appreciate your writing, and that's why I wanted to ask you that question because I felt like you weren't trying to weren't trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes, or you're not trying to you know sell an idea. You're just kind of like this is a concern, and here are the facts, and and what do you guys think, right? And so yeah, yeah I really I really appreciate your writing style, and um, I appreciate you coming on today. This was this was a really good conversation, and uh, I look forward to talking about your new book when it comes out this summer. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for listening, folks. That was awesome, right? Who knew that peatlands were so important, so cool, so crucial, right? So if you got any questions for myself or for Ed, shoot me an email, yourforestpodcast at gmail.com, and I will definitely get back to you. Uh, if you want to help me out, you can share this on social media, tell your friends. You can just get it out there in any way you can. If you've got a big Twitter following or something, just start blasting these episodes out there and talk about how much you love it. That would be that would be super cool. I would love that because <laughs> I'm terrible at the social media thing. need somebody to uh, take it upon themselves. <laughs> All right. We'll, uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Take it easy.